Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. A holiday celebration. He hit the gas with his red Ford Escape and used it as a battering ram. Turned into a bloody nightmare. Oh my God! Oh my God! Shoes everywhere, palms everywhere, bodies, just chaos. Now the man charged with killing six and injuring more than 60 in the Waukesha Christmas Parade. I'm winging it, Your Honor. Has brought chaos. At one point, he took off a shoe. To the courtroom. He took his shirt off as well. He is threatening to throw and break items. It is the sole intent of Mr. Brooks to make a mockery of this process. The trial of Daryl Brooks is far from over. I would like to issue the, the court an apology. I wasn't raised that way. But prosecutors say to them, what happened that night is painfully clear. There was a true sense of joy in the air. Daryl Brooks killed that joy. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I have a pair of guests today, both of whom have spent considerable time the past couple of weeks inside the Waukesha County Courthouse covering the trial of Daryl Brooks. We have Fox 6's Brett Lemoyne. Hi, Brett. Hi, Brian. And Fox 6's Sam Kramer. Welcome back to the podcast, Sam. Thanks for having me, Brian. So we are recording this episode on Wednesday, October 12th for release on Thursday, October 13th. The Waukesha Christmas Parade trial is now on its eighth day overall and its sixth day of testimony. Am I counting that right? Actually, I guess by the time it's released, it will be. All I know is we're several days into this now, and most of us are watching this trial from our phones and television screens, but you two have been there in the courthouse in person. Um, I'll let you guys decide. Maybe, Brett, I'll start with you since you've been covering the day shift on these or the early part, but kind of describe for me the, the setup there, the atmosphere, and uh, maybe the role of uh, court TV. We don't often have court TV come in and, and cover our trials, but what do people not see who are watching, like me, who are watching at home? Sure. Yeah. Good question, Brian. Um, I guess I'd start by saying court TV came in uh, just, I think, two days before this trial start, two, bus- two business days before the trial started and really kind of changed uh, the whole dynamic of how we see and get information to our viewers. Uh, they're letting us utilize their cameras. They've placed cameras in the courtroom. Um, before they were going to be here, uh, we would only have one of our pool cameras uh, for all of the media, the local media here uh, in Milwaukee. Uh, And then we'd also be able to utilize the four stationary cameras that the courtroom has uh, in place here in Waukesha County. Uh, So this has really changed the entire game in terms of what we can see in the courtroom and, and how we really can um, you know, observe what's going on and, and taking place. We're getting clear, good pictures of of uh, Daryl Brooks, of uh, the the uh, prosecutors in this case, of the judge, uh, and also of the exhibits. Um, with the caveat being, Brian, that um, the cameras 
turn away uh, whenever there's anything that's uh, graphic in nature, um, that is not being shown um, by by those cameras. One thing I want to ask about that, because uh, actually Carl Deffenbaugh brought it up. I've been going on to Fox 6 Wake Up to talk about the progress of the case. And, and I mentioned that the witnesses were the only ones seeing this graphic uh, video and we were just hearing. But But he asked, what about the jurors? Are they seeing what the witnesses see? I assume they are, right? Yeah, so it, it depends on um, what's being played and um, at the request of the prosecution or, or uh, Mr. Brooks. But yeah, uh, for the most part, there are two uh, large screens that are on the wall. Um, one is to the juror's left and the other is directly in front of them. And any images that are being displayed um, electronically, um, so that's video, uh, any pictures, um, any documents that are going up, uh, they're all being able to be seen through those two uh, television screens. Sam, I know you've been coming in and sort of relieving Brett as he goes to do the early uh, news reports, and then you take over to make sure we're not missing any of this testimony. Uh, tell me a little bit about just sort of the logistics of how this works. I mean, I know with most trials, we're sitting right there in the courtroom, but there's so much interest in this. There are so many witnesses and victims and just there's so much public interest. Are you able to actually sit in the courtroom or are you watching this from somewhere else? So I'm actually not sitting in the courtroom. I am among a group of maybe a dozen or 16 members of the press that are down a few hallways from the courtroom only for the purpose of being able to take live notes. Um, Judge Jennifer Doro, because of her order, essentially banned the use of cell phones, laptops, etc. inside the courtroom other than by court staff. Um, and for us, again, because it is being live streamed and because it is such a matter of uh, intense public interest, we found it better to, to really pay attention and keep this live log, these live notes of what's happening, who's asking what questions, what the witnesses are saying, because that just mobilizes our team back at the station uh, or just our anchors, producers, what have you, to, to really get going, to really uh, know what's happening almost in real time. You could sit in there and there is a benefit to sitting in there. As a matter of fact, Brett has done it at times this week, but you get, you're limited to pen and paper notes and there's a delay as far as getting back to uh, your electronic device and sharing what happened uh, with you know people that are looking to consume that. Brett, with regard to that, when you're in the courtroom, I know uh, Sam says you've been in there a few times. How what's how is this experience different when you are in that room versus watching over video screens? Well, uh, then you're seeing really what the jury's seeing, right? Uh, and it is uh, a much different experience. I was just up there on Tuesday afternoon for some testimony, and um, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me was how many uh, victims, how many witnesses are, are seated in in the uh, the gallery each and every day. They're filling up about. I'd say two, two and a half rows, maybe three uh, on some days um, in, in the gallery. Um, and then uh, you also get a look at the jury, you know, how they're reacting to some of the testimony. And when I was there on Tuesday, um, you know, I noticed that uh, there were a number of, um, uh, of jurors that, you know, sometimes they were making eye contact with people in the gallery. Sometimes they had their eyes focused on the screens. Sometimes they were looking at Mr. Brooks. Um, but I also noticed that there are uh, lots of tissues. Um, they've got about six boxes that I counted of tissues that are on the, on the, uh, the bench of the, uh, the jury box. And I think that speaks to uh, you know, the, the magnitude and the emotional intensity of some of the testimony and videos uh, that we've been hearing this week. When, when you were in the courtroom and Brooks is doing these sort of repeated uh, 
objections and asking, you know, demanding grounds, grounds, grounds. When he's doing that, and you can tell at times the judge is getting frustrated where she says, you've got to move on, ask a new question, or just, I'm going to cut this off. Do you see, did you see if the jurors were reacting to that at all? Does it seem that he's hurting himself in doing that, or, or was there really no reaction at all? You know, I mean, that, that that's hard to, to say, really, but I, I did see a couple of jurors at, at, at times kind of I wouldn't say roll their eyes, but they directed their eyes to the ceiling uh, when some of those things had, had happened. Um, but, you know, it's really hard to tell if that is having any impact on, um, you know, the information that they're digesting. I would I would add, Brian, that when Brooks does that in court, uh, it's really not substantive at all. Um, you know, it, it's really just more, I guess, seems like more of a, just a reaction that he has um, than anything else. Um, it's not based in any legal merit. Um, so, it, and I think that the jury is, is pretty well aware of that by now. But I want to talk about just the chaos of what we saw in that first week of the trial. I think after the first couple of days of jury instructions, and I know you were in on some of this, Sam, you had to wonder, is there any way they're going to be able to get through this case? Because during jury instructions, it was kind of a mess, wasn't it? I'm sorry, not jury instruction, jury selection. Jury selection, yes. Um, it was a, a real first taste, perhaps, of what was about to come, right? Uh, there was so many people brought in, and you had to wonder first, you know, they, I believe they um, had called and summoned about 300 people um, to keep in mind that to seat a jury of 12 with four alternates, uh, you know, you had to wonder first the exposure to all of this. And then if they hadn't been exposed to what happened, to come into the courtroom to see a defendant representing himself and behaving in a way that is just not in line with really any sense of decorum within the courthouse, the courtroom. Um, it was chaotic. It was, I don't mean to be, the, I don't mean to throw out hyperbole, but it was really unlike anything I'd ever seen in court as far as just the interruptions, his refusal to, um, you know, kind of respond or recognize his own name to throw out the entire jury for cause without offering any sort of specifics. You know, at times the judge mentioned she had blocked off the entire month of October for jury selection, the evidence and testimony, and then um, as far as the jury to deliberate. And initially I was thinking, wow, that's a really long time. Two days later, I'm thinking, boy, I hope we finish within that time frame, just because of how long these days were going. I mean, court was ending about 6, 6.30, close to 7, uh, when they were initially trying to get out at five or even before five. When all of that was going on and we didn't know where this was going to go, you know, he, he, Brooks is getting sort of kicked out of the courtroom, so to speak, going to an, a, an adjoining courtroom uh, where the judge found sort of a hybrid way of allowing him to be present for the proceedings, but she had the control over when he could speak and when he couldn't speak. And it seemed like that's maybe how this whole trial was going to proceed. And then come Monday, Daryl Brooks shows up in, I guess prior to that, he'd been back in the courtroom, but he shows up in a suit and Brett, you were there when out of maybe nowhere, he issues a two minute long apology. Can you talk about that moment? Yeah, um, he stood up. He spoke for, as you said, about almost two and a half minutes uh, and acknowledged his behavior. Now, this was outside of the presence of the jury. So they weren't they weren't there. Uh, but he did address, um, you know, the judge and the prosecutors uh, and his family, frankly. He said he was not raised this way. Uh, and one thing that I thought was really interesting, Brian, is that, um, you know, as you said, this happened on Monday. Sunday night, Fox 6 aired a report. Uh, Mary Stoker Smith had interviewed uh, Daryl Brooks's mother, Dawn Woods, 
And I can't help but think that that maybe had something to do with it. You know, he was referencing his upbringing. He was referencing his mom. And, um, you know, just the night before, we aired a, an interview with his, his mother. And um, in that interview, she, you know, had addressed his, his, uh, his demeanor and his conduct in the courtroom. Uh, and so I, I can't help but think that there was a correlation there. His mom uh, has said before, and she wrote in a letter to the court, that she believes her son was having a manic episode, that this is all caused by his mental, untreated mental health issues. Uh, but he is not operating on a plea of insanity. He's he, he had one at one time, withdrew that plea. I, is there any sense that that's still something he could try to go to? I mean, it seems like it would be harder and harder to go to that after now days and days of him asking you know, these long lines of very specific and planned out questions, it seems like it would be difficult to sort of go back to suggesting that he has no idea what's going on at the trial. Yeah. And I think, Brian, that's why the judge is being almost strategic in a way of of making notes when he is, um, you know, behaving, um, you know, making notes when he does ask, uh, in quote unquote, in her words, intelligent questions. Um, and I think that that really has been uh, the, the, the main reason she's been doing that is to keep a record of that so that when, you know, come time for a possible appeal uh, that she can point out, well, hey, wait a minute, you know, on, on Tuesday, you were well behaved, you, you were listening, um, there, was, there was no issue here. Uh, and I think that that is really just to kind of uh, put a button on, on any possible, um, you know, mental health issues popping up in the future uh, as part of the appeal. And I'd also note that the district attorney uh, has made several, several statements about all of the past, um, you know, evaluations, mental health evaluations, all of the times that Daryl Brooks has been in front of a doctor and uh, there have been no documented mental health issues. You guys have been there all, you know, through all of this testimony as Brooks has gone through lengthy cross-examinations. I, mean, I think the state on Monday thought this case is accelerating. We might be wrapped up by Thursday or at worst case Friday morning. Now it looks like it'll be uh, at least Monday, if not beyond, depending on how things go. But during those lengthy cross-examinations, Brooks has asked a lot of questions about things like, you know, how good is your memory of the situation? Did you get a license plate? Did you get a good description of the car? Um, He's also asked about, you know, their judgment of speed. Why didn't you get medical attention right away? But another thing he's focused a lot of time on, it seems to be, is he keeps asking each of these witnesses the question of, have you met the plaintiff? Do you know the plaintiff? Have you spoken to the plaintiff? Um, have you, uh, can you identify who the plaintiff is? Where's he going with this? Uh, any idea what he's trying to prove with that line of questioning? Well, I think it, it, it speaks to his sovereign citizen defense here where he just doesn't recognize that, um, you know, the state, uh, I, I guess, is as an entity um, that can bring about charges uh, because, quote unquote, in his words, the state is not the victim here. Um, I think that is where he's going with that. But really, there's a big question mark on his his own defense as we head into, um, you know, the, the state wrapping up its case potentially um, by by next week, Monday. Um, in fact, as we record this, Brian, we're going to hear for the first time out of order 
order, uh, Daryl Brooks is going to call a witness um, today on Wednesday uh, because of the need of, a, of an interpreter in the courtroom. So that might actually give us our first window into what his potential defenses here. But really, you know, some of the questions that he's been asking of these witnesses, whether or not they they saw someone in the back seat or if there was, um, you know, if they got a license plate, it's really like taking a bobby pin and trying to poke a hole in the Hoover Dam. Uh, it's just not, it's just not really a, a, a winning strategy here, I don't think. Um, you know, the, there have already been testimonies from police officers, and even the jury saw a photograph, Brian, of uh, what appeared to be uh, Daryl Brooks behind the wheel of the SUV on the parade route. So whether or not every single person uh, who was on the parade route, who was impacted in any way uh, by this tragedy, was able to identify Daryl Brooks or identify his license plate is really moot um, when there's already been testimony from, from police uh, and, and video evidence that shows Again, what prosecutors say is Daryl Brooks behind the wheel. We know his mom has already said it was him. She said in that interview with Mary Stoker Smith that he feels bad about what he's done and that it's just one of his episodes. So there doesn't seem to be any real denial there. It does make you wonder where he's going with that. Um, Sam, I know that as the week has progressed and the, the prosecution has sort of taken the jurors through the journey this SUV took through the parade route, we've gotten into uh, more of the really severe territory where we're dealing with people talking about seeing children run over um, an eight-year-old who was killed, and pretty soon we'll be hearing from those who witnessed the deaths of, of some of the dancing grannies. Can you talk about sort of the emotions of of, of these uh, you know witnesses who are testifying and and then how they're managing these lengthy and detailed cross examinations from the person who's accused of causing all of this carnage? Well, first off, let's back up. The prosecution has a witness list of, I believe, three hundred and forty people uh, that I believe that they were ready to call. Um, you know, as many as they needed, as far as. Uh, when Brooks was still having a public defender. When that goes out the window, they really, from what it seems like, and frankly, from what they've mentioned in opening statements, have almost shrunk their case to just the minimum to explain each of the six fatalities and then also hear uh, from you know police, uh, firefighters, parents um, who were injured or their kids were injured. And then uh, and I know we'll hear later from the medical examiner. So Keep in mind, they've already condensed this. They were clear. They said they don't want to re-victimize anyone involved in this, especially those children who have already lived through so much in just the last year. Um, but you can still tell for the parents that are getting up on the stand, it's tough. It's emotional. You know, what, what you're talking about there, it sounds like what you're saying is there were people who maybe had maybe parents Maybe maybe Jackson Sparks, the eight-year-old boy who died, maybe his parents were going to testify. Maybe some of these kids who were hospitalized were originally going to testify. But now knowing they would have to face cross-examination uh, from Daryl Brooks, do you believe because of that, the state has, has, has whittled some of that down and said, we're not going to put you in that position? Yeah, I do. I believe they shielded them. And I think that um, perhaps maybe shows the jury that there's compassion here. But again, even for those that are taking the stand, I think back to Tuesday, Jeff Rogers, president of the uh, Waukesha Blazers baseball club, it was tough for him to, dis to discuss what was happening to eight-year-old Jackson Sparks. And you get to the extreme dance team coaches, uh, Alyssa Gajewski and Jamie Sutton. They both were emotional, especially Gajewski, as far as 
watching and listening to this video and the screams, um, uh, you know, 15 girls in that group uh, were injured. You know, you come to this parade, it is the ultimate juxtaposition of joy and terror as far as what happened. And to really re go through that again, it's emotional for these adults. You can only imagine uh, what it could have been like uh, for those children if they were indeed called to the stand. And in terms of the order, we are we are seeing the prosecution walk us through the parade route, really from sort of back to front where the, the SUV came through. And I know that uh, as of Wednesday, we've gotten to, I believe, uh, the Citizens Bank. Uh, and, and right after them is Dancing Granny. So I imagine that's coming up soon. And, and, and Dancing Grannies uh, obviously involved that, that, that parade entry involved four of the fatalities, three of the dancers themselves and, and one of their husbands. Um, I imagine that is expected to be very powerful testimony. You have to wonder if that is almost the, uh, the climax, if you will, of this case for prosecutors. That is, you know, because remember Jackson Sparks, died a couple of days later at the hospital. When we first began to learn about the victims, we saw the ages right away. And Jane Coolidge was the youngest at 52. She was with Citizens Bank. And then it's the dancing grannies who are all older than that. And, and that, I think, is what captured um, perhaps the hearts of a lot of people as far as just how tragic this was, because it's elderly people, men and women that are just you know, have found this uh, activity uh, as something to do in perhaps in retirement. A and they are marching through the parade. It is the highlight of their year in many ways. Uh, and then something like this happens. So yes, it, it sure seems like it is going to be a fairly emotional time. You know, during opening statements, uh, the assistant district attorney, Zachary Wichow, said we're going to hear from, um, you know, witnesses within that group who say, you know, they were dancing, they had pom-poms in the air. Next thing they know, the SUV comes through and there are already bodies on the ground before pom-poms hit the ground. Yeah, that was really a statement that stood out. I, I, I imagine after that, after the SUV exits that area, we know that there was, I believe there were shots fired at the end of the parade route when he was leaving the parade route. Um, we know that the car ends up being parked in a driveway, the damaged vehicle backed into a driveway. Brooks ends up showing up on the front porch of a, of a neighbor's home barefoot and saying that he was waiting for a lift. Um, so I imagine there's more testimony to come in that regard, but that's probably going to center around more law enforcement witnesses and maybe the potentially the, uh, the person whose house that was. Yes. Uh, I believe his name is Daniel Ryder uh, in, in which I'll again referenced him in opening statements saying he is uh, kind of the epitome of, of what good Waukesha people do. This gentleman shows up on his doorstep. He doesn't have shoes on. Um, he seems kind of disheveled, and he asks to use his phone to try and order some sort of Uber or Lyft, um, even makes him a sandwich and offers him to come inside. And then the police show up on his doorstep, um, you know, not really knowing. I think we were able to see the doorbell camera video of that as that was happening. Um, so, yeah, that that is going to be... Um, kind of the the second to last point of their argument before there's a field trip. And it, right now it sounds like that is going to be on Monday. Um, the jury will be able to go to a secure garage location and actually see the Ford Escape, the red SUV that was involved uh, in this attack. It's a typical in a, in a homicide case where you might have uh, the prosecutor bring in the murder weapon, if it's a gun, they, they have a plastic bag, they pull it out, they show it to the jury. Um, you can't roll a damaged SUV into the courtroom. So this is really the prosecution's way to show them the murder weapon, right? 
Correct. And again, to go back to the opening statement, which I said, there is no gun, there is no knife. Brooks used 3,500 pounds of steel, of glass, of rubber. Uh, and I think that was a powerful statement. You, know, you think of homicide and there are so many ideas that come to mind, but really through this, um, the car was his bullet, so to speak. We have the prosecution then potentially wrapping up on Monday and then other than this one out of order witness because of the need for an interpreter, then Brooks begins to make his case. We know he's subpoenaed about a dozen people. Do we have any idea who these people are uh, and, and how long his case might take? Uh, it, it's tough to say on both fronts. One, again, we know we know the first person he's going to call today, um, based on some research that we have done, is a victim in the parade. So I don't understand, uh, to be completely honest, why a victim in the parade might testify for the defense. That's going to be interesting to see. Um, yesterday, uh, Tuesday, he had referenced that he was trying to call uh, 13 people specifically. He said that was his list, and his 13th. Uh, was one of the parade organizers. Well, she now lives out of state in Texas, um, and he has told the court he just doesn't have the money to pay for um, that person's travel back to Wisconsin to be able to testify. Um, There was discussion back and forth. Um, Prosecution has offered to help serve subpoenas um, that are within southeastern Wisconsin, but Texas is uh, so much farther away. On Wednesday, he referenced wanting to call the state of Wisconsin as his 13th witness. And it comes right back again to that sovereign citizen defense, the, the uh, I would say, relentless questioning of jurisdiction. Um, you know, again, saying almost at every occasion when he's referred to as Mr. Brooks, nope, sorry, I don't identify by that name. Um, so we know one, we know what he's tried to do with 13, but those middle 11, it's anyone's guess right now. Well, Sam, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about the case. Uh, This is such a fascinating case and obviously has meaning to so many people in southeast Wisconsin. Uh, And, um, you know, we've got a a ways to go. I'm sure we'll talk about this again. Maybe by next week we can talk about this case going to the jury uh, or or, or potentially even having a verdict. Oh, I think maybe by Thursday that might be optimistic. But but thanks again for, for coming on to talk about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And here to ask us that question, as always, is Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hey, Sarah. Hello, friends. All right. Today, um, I, I don't know. I, I kind of grappled with this one. I went back and forth, but, you know. Okay, the question is... You're given $20. What do you buy for yourself? Like it's just as an unattached $20. Someone says you got to spend this on something. Hmm. Yes, I am gifting you this $20. Because for me, if if someone doesn't indicate it's got to be for something fun or casual, if they don't sort of add that disclaimer, I end up just putting it in my pocket and sort of it just – I'm hoping that later in the week when I need it, you know, for groceries or whatever, that's where it goes. And that's boring. But it, yeah, it ends up being what I tend to do. But if somebody really admonishes me, like, no, this is special. Spend it on whatever you get want. Get yourself for me, a little something. What do you get? It's probably going to be like a Starbucks coffee and some sort of like either breakfast sandwich or a, a cookie or a treat there. I'd probably do something like that because for 20 bucks, you can't get much more than that. So, no, it's probably <laughs> it's probably something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Sam? I 
am going to follow a similar path. I would probably go get an iced coffee at either Valentine Coffee or Cranky Al's in Tosa. And because my dog will be staring at me the whole time saying, what about me? <laughs> I will use whatever money I have left to uh, head to a Sendix, maybe get a soup bone or any, anything else for him. Oh, that's, that's a nice. happy dog so right there. That's what I was yeah. going to say, right? Um, I'm, you know what? I, you know, I kind of, I thought the same thing. I mean, $20, it doesn't buy a whole lot, but, um, snacks, like I love snacks. So whether that maybe I hit up a quick trip and, you know, I don't know, Gardetto's quick trip maybe, is, uh, is deadly because it's, there's so many good oh, things there. And actually correct. what I like about quick trip is you can fool yourself into thinking, but I'm going to eat healthy here and I'll grab <laughs> myself like a little bag of like 99 cents worth of carrots. But then I'm like, oh, but since I did that, I can also get a $2 bag of chips and four brownies on the way out. And then you and just... And a fountain soda. And a fountain soda. And you've just destroyed everything. Always the fountain soda. And then those carrots will end up on the floor, on your floor of the Quick car. Is dangerous <laughs> Never to be way. seen again. <laughs> Why are these carrots warm? Yeah, no, that's that right. Oh, just... they've been here since June. <laughs> the other, but now I, I never, I don't know if you guys buy scratch offs at all. I never buy like lottery tickets ever, but for my... 50th birthday party there were a number of people who came and bought me I, maybe it's a thing they bought scratch-offs and i and one of them i actually i won 60 dollars on a scratch-off holy camoli i feel like maybe i need to buy a couple of coffees and maybe get sam's dog a bone um, yeah because i got three times this much so that's what gets you hooked that's, that's what I'm saying. It's And the, the problem, the slippery slope is you win like three bucks, four bucks. And instead of just taking the three bucks, four bucks, I'm like, no, just give me three more tickets. Until you and lose then, them all. Right? Yeah, yeah, until I have no money left. Yeah, Yeah, I do that with pull tabs too. And oh. just, just for reference <laughs> too, tabs. because the so topic good. of this episode, there is a quick trip not two blocks from the courthouse. It is the fuel that all reporters, producers, photographers are running on to work this trial. You know, what's funny about just dollar amounts, because we said, well, $20 doesn't seem like much in terms of like buying yourself a great treat, right? But I could I can go to the store and labor over whether this item at the grocery store costs 10 cents more than that item. And I'm looking at unit prices, but then I go out with friends and somebody's like, round of shots? Sure. And you know, what what is that? <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it is funny how we determine in what scenario we're in, how you value. What has value. <laughs> yes. Well, I will say what has value more than anything is, uh, Sam, the time you've given us, because I know you've got a busy week and you've got to head back over to the Waukesha County Courthouse whenever they're done with all of this tornado mess on Wednesday uh, to, to get back in there for the afternoon um, of testimony. So, Sam, thanks again for joining us for the podcast this week. Absolutely. Happy to. And Sarah, of course, thank you to you as well. Thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Sarah Smith. Going a bit out of order, I've got to remind you, if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back next week. <laughs>